chords for the win. Welcome back, everyone, to the Content Blues Podcast. I'm Andrew. Uh, it's been a hot minute since last I recorded an episode. I had planned to uh, record something all through the summer, but I didn't because uh, my summer was kind of busy. I was doing a bit of traveling, doing a bit of vacationing. I had to get an issue of Unnamed Journal out the door and a couple of uh, episodes of the Shallon Pedantic podcast. And I was uh, getting the final touches on the Meditations of Caius Caligula, which is on Amazon.com as we speak right now. Uh, in fact, uh, there's I'm doing a, a Kindle countdown deal on it right now. So if you uh, you act fast, you can get the uh, the ebook for ninety nine cents. And um, I've got some good reviews on it uh, and some good ratings. So it's not just me tooting my own horn. People who have read the book have had lots of good things to say about it. Lots of uh, four and five star reviews. So it's uh, it's a quality product I'm shilling right now. So when I say it's on offer for 99 cents, you should jump on that and buy it. Because if you don't, then I'll tell you to do it again because that's how this works. So uh, welcome and enjoy. Okay, so I'm basically treating this as the Lost Summer episode. I, I had an episode of stuff and some content that I wanted to talk about, uh, planned out and ready to go, but uh, as I said before, I never got around to it, so I'm just going to go ahead and talk about those things and get that out of the way, and then I'll find new things to talk about uh, next time that I record a podcast, which will probably be around the end of the month. Um, that's kind of the benchmark I'm shooting for right now. So the first thing I want to talk about is a movie that I saw at the beginning of the summer. Um, it was on Netflix. It's been on Netflix. It's a Netflix movie that, uh, uh, was announced with a great deal of fanfare and, uh, people saw it and they had a lot of very strange reactions to it. It was, uh, a movie that people found interesting but ultimately unlikable and uh i i i sat down and watched it and uh i kind of i kind of have to confirm uh those expectations because it was a it was a very strange movie it was telling a very strange story in a very conventional kind of way and I, it, it had an interesting effect, but I, I don't think it quite worked. It, it almost seems like an anti-movie. Uh, the movie I'm speaking of is called I Care A Lot. Uh, maybe, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, maybe you heard about it. It's a very, very interesting film, interesting for the choices that it made. But it was uh, something that I... Um, Ultimately disliked and and found dislikable. In in a lot of ways, the uh, it was it was a strangely disturbing film, and not in a way that gives you aesthetic pleasure. So uh, it's the wrong kind of disturbing. Is is the point I'm trying to make? Uh, the film, uh, if you if you ever saw the trailer to it, you 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 pretty much grasped the main idea. It is about a woman 
who uses the state, uses the court system to uh, gain legal guardianship over old people and uh, having once gained legal guardianship over them, uh, parks them in old folks' homes and uh, empties their estate and uh pockets the difference between the cost of her the cost of the old folks home and uh and when what's in the money she pockets the rest and does so quite brazenly and uh she's ultimately a a villain and a thoroughly dislikable person which is is strange because in a perverse way we're we're meant to be uh we're meant to be blown away by her, I guess, in some way. She's she's so badass, I guess, is the uh, is the intention, or it's 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 girl boss the movie, and um, you know, I can I can sort of see the anti-hero vibe they're going for, but a good anti-hero is a rogue. In a way that is, you know, not just defiant of norms. A good anti-hero does not exploit, uh, or at least at least doesn't exploit the innocent. Um, you know, one one thinks about someone like, uh, you know, the man with no name from Fistful of Dollars, who who definitely uh, exploits the villainous but does not exploit innocent people in fact he sticks up for them uh that's what that's the difference between an anti-hero and a villain and uh this this protagonist i guess in this story is a woman where they're they're, the movie seems to want to treat her like an anti-hero but she's just a villain she's just a bad person doing bad things and I'm supposed to find that admirable for some reason. And uh, that's, that's difficult to do. Now, uh, there's, there's two bad guys in this movie. We also get to see uh, uh, Peter Dinklage show up as a, as a Russian mafia Don, which is, uh, you know, he pulls it off because he's Peter Dinklage, but, you know, you have to... You have to suspend disbelief. Uh, you don't have to work too hard to suspend it because it's Peter Dinklage and he can he can just act. But, you know, you, you do kind of find yourself saying, Yeah, it's Peter Dinklage. It's Tyrion Lannister. Good times. And um, he's a Russian mafia boss. And just the movie just asks that you accept that. And at this point, you know, by the time he shows up, you're, you're ready to accept it because she's... The other character is just so awful and monstrous that... Um, you're, you're, you're ready to root for the Russian mafia. At least I was. I was rooting for the Russian mafia. That's the moral universe that this film puts you in. And it seems pretty pleased with itself for doing so. Um, which is fine. You know, you can have movies where bad guys fight bad guys and it's just pure schlock entertainment. But in the, um... In the third act of this film, they the film seems to want me to root for the initial character, the 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 thieving villainous girl boss, and want me to be on her side and want me to to marvel at her while she uh, 
while she goes up against the Russian mob. And I kind of don't want to. So all those scenes fall really flat and I'm really bored. And uh, that's that's the hardest part of the suspension of disbelief is, is not Peter Dinklage as a mafia Don, but the fact that a Russian mafia Don could order someone dead and they would not die. Like, <laughs> that's that's the part that really strains disbelief. Not uh, not Peter Dinklage. Not Peter Dinklage, the, the whole third act of the movie. And um, then just when you think that you, you can't stand anymore, uh, the ending, the ending of this film almost redeems it. Almost. Almost. Like, we're in spoilers territory. I'm going to spoil the ending because I don't actually advise that you watch this movie. Um, you can if you have some kind of uh, mordant interest in doing so, but I don't, I don't really advise it because if you have any kind of moral sense and you, you desire that your moral sense be reflected in the art that you consume, um, this you will hate this. But it's kind of terrifying. So what ends up happening is that uh, Girl Boss and, uh, and Peter Dinklage, Russian Mafia Don, decide to team up and take her business model full corporate. Uh, we're going to go full... Uh, we're going to create a giant Fortune 500 business out of uh, thieving the estates of elderly rich people and pocketing the proceeds to ourselves. And she gets super famous, and she gets, she becomes like, you know, cover of Forbes. She's, she's literally the greatest girl boss of all time. It's amazing. And that's the part that's terrifying. There's definitely a, a big blunt statement here about corporate America that is, is just really on the nose. And that's, uh, that's almost redemption. Almost. Um, they're really... <laughs> and, uh, because I'm gonna spoil the whole thing. I'm gonna spoil the whole thing. At the very, very end of the movie, uh, she is murdered. Not by Russian mafia, Don betraying her, but by some guy we saw at the beginning of the movie who was clearly intended to be some kind of foil or stooge some kind of some kind of dopey bearded maga hat wearing guy whom the movie wants us to despise and yet he's the one who does justice at the end by disposing of this villainous person and uh i i, I don't know if the movie wants me to feel bad for her cuz she gets you know shot and murdered on the street i i don't know if that's what they're going for it was easier at that point to feel nothing. Um, and that's really the effect that the movie has. You just you just find yourself feeling nothing and not caring about anything that happens. So I, uh, for a movie called I Care A Lot, um, I did not care at all. Um, so I realized that a bunch of people probably came to this conclusion months ago, but uh, it was such a strange movie-going experience for me that I, I felt an obligation to talk about it. So uh, it's, it's, it's a bad movie that should be only viewed by those with a mordant interest in watching bad movies that were trying to be uh, pretentious uh, indie art. 
this is the the worst kind of uh, pseudo intellectual dreck in that respect. So uh, a million curses are not enough for it. <laughs> Right. The next thing in my notes is, uh, I'm reading verbatim from my notes. It says, Aldous Huxley, the last natural philosopher. Uh, that sounds like a great title for an article that I won't ever write, but should. Um, I have been reading and recently read Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, a uh, copy which includes his other essay, Heaven and Hell, uh, both of which were about, uh, what happens when an English uh, intellectual, upper middle class intellectual drops acid. And it is a, a wonderful read. <laughs> I made it sound ridiculous, but it's not. Um, the, when I wrote here, The Last Natural Philosopher, uh, what I mean is that Huxley, Huxley writes the way um, philosophers wrote like centuries ago. Uh, there's a... There's a clean linearity in his prose, and uh, reading it and reading him is a pleasure. Uh, even if he's writing about something that uh, you would never do, such as such as take acid, or something that is uh, that you might not even agree with his his viewpoints on on taking acid. I I don't have a strong opinion about it, but uh, reading him is a pleasure. Um, and I, I sh that shouldn't be a surprise to me because uh, it's it's far more enjoyable to read Brave New World than it is to read 1984. Um, even if uh, Brave New World is actually, on a certain sense, more terrifying because it's it's closer to describing what the world we live in is actually like. I mean, it's it's not overstating matters, and I think lots of people have have already made this point. And would agree that Brave New World actually happened, and um, uh, we only get we only have echoes of 1984 uh, in our society now. Little things that we can analogize to being like 1984. Um, 1984 was itself an analogy of the totalitarian purity spiral, which is a, just a intensification of the purity spirals that existed in. Um, early modern Europe in the uh, Spanish Inquisition or the witch trials, um, that kind of thing. So uh, Brave New World, on the other hand, uh, eerily described the world that was coming and the world that we, we kind of live in right now. So uh, Huxley gets the points for his, his accuracy. And uh, what I discovered in reading this book of Heaven and Hell is how productive Huxley was. Huxley wrote a lot. Like, he started writing in the 20s and was still going at the moment of his death. He died. <laughs> he died in 1963. He died on November 22nd, 1963, uh, the same day as uh, John Kennedy and C.S. Lewis. And, of course, John Kennedy got all the, the press that day because he was assassinated. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, got, the, uh, got the bottom half of the newspaper, even in, his, even in his own country. 
and uh, Aldous Huxley was forgotten about altogether, which is a shame. He's um, that's the origin of uh, uh, they they come in threes. They always go in threes. There's always a third one, I think. I think the first one of those happened in 1963. Uh, that's that's the truth that exists now in my head canon. It was it was the first three was John Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley because they all died on the same day. Um, in 1963, but he was, he was a very productive author. He wrote a lot of books, a lot of novels, mostly novels. He was mostly a fiction author, but he also wrote some other things. He was also an essayist and, uh, he's just the kind of guy that's such a pleasure to read. He is, uh, uh, a depository and a continuer of a grand intellectual tradition, kind of like Montaigne, who I was talking about, uh, in another episode, uh, just just wonderful. Just uh, the Western canon lives on in Aldous Huxley. It's what uh, what C.S. Lewis called the Tao. Uh, not really. The, the Lewis meant by the Tao the the moral traditions of the culture, and not just Western civilization, but all civilizations. But that's the sort of thing that comes to mind. Like uh, Huxley is someone who is trained in an intellectual tradition and it's an intellectual tradition whose death he seems to have foreseen in Brave New World and that is a, a, a source of lamentation for someone like myself. So if you have not yet read The Doors of Perception, um, you should. Whether you care about LSD or not, you should. Whether you care that that was the name of, uh, that was the reason that the rock band The Doors named themselves that, um, you should. Uh, <laughs> it's not it's not Huxley's fault that uh, Jim Morrison was influenced by him. I think uh, uh, anybody who knew anything about Jim Morrison uh, knew that he was going to be that way regardless of what he read. But uh, The Doors of Perception is still worth reading. It has interesting things to say about humanity and the human mind and how it works and uh, what perception means and our place in the universe. And it's, it's not just a stupid drug tale. It's a drug tale from which interesting insights can be drawn. Uh, he, he, he took a lesson out of what he did. It's not like reading uh, Hunter Thompson, where you're really just reading it to enjoy a man uh, debasing himself in an amusing way. Um, it's not like that. This isn't Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or Fear and Loathing in England. This is The Doors of Perception. This has high-minded and interesting things to say, if you're into that sort of thing. So I want to read more Aldous Huxley, because I've now got a kick on it. And, uh, you know, because otherwise I'm just going to read more Brett Easton Ellis. And that's fine because he's an interesting author. But he the insights that you can get from that are kind of cold and postmodern. It's uh, Brett Easton Ellis is, is, a, is a wonderful viewer of anxiety attacks. But... While that's valid as art, it does not, uh, it does not inspire. It, uh, it entertains, but it does, it does not necessarily inspire. So I want to read some more Aldous Huxley because he is cool. And uh, yeah, so watch this space for more babble about Aldous Huxley.
Record Store Day happened this year, and I was actually able to make it to a record store on Record Store Day. We had two Record Store Day this year, uh, one in April and one in July, and uh, I made it to the one in April, and I walked away with some stuff, and the thing that I, I want to have, have a little chat about is uh, the Black Sabbath album I picked up. Uh, I picked up uh, Heaven and Hell. There was a new picture disc reissue of the 1980 album, Heaven and Hell, which was Sabbath's first album with Ronnie James Dio. And that's kind of what I wanted to mention about it, because um, in recent years, I've gotten kind of into doom metal as a, as a style. It interests me. I've listened to some indie acts like... Uh, Egypt, and one or two others, you know, stuff I found on Bandcamp. But listening to doom metal means listening to Black Sabbath, and I listened to uh, quite a bit of early Sabbath uh, recently. I think I've got all four, their first four albums on CD. So this is actually, this is my first Sabbath on vinyl, and it was the first one that they did without Ozzy. Uh, it's an album I'd heard of, obviously. It was people who uh, had spoken of this, and I'd read about it as uh, being a pretty solid album, and I'd never never listened to it at all. But, you know, it was Record Store Day, and the best thing about Record Store Day, just rolling in there without an agenda, and uh, buying something that you had no notion that you wanted. I mean, that's that's really the whole point. I mean, if I want to do a deep dive into Black Sabbath's entire discography, I can get on Amazon and, and or iTunes and get what I need. So Record Store Day and shopping in a record store and anything like that is really about the total absence of intention. Just walking in, seeing something that appeals to you, and buying it just on a whim. And some of my favorite records, some of my favorite albums have come to me in exactly that way. Just something I had no idea I was going to buy, and then I bought it. So that's, um, that's the fun of it. But uh, having given Dio's first album with Sabbath a listen, I have some thoughts. Uh, this past week, I was at a, a brewery that... Um, that also has a doubles as a, a storehouse of, of vinyl and, and plays a lot of vinyl. A lot of uh, a lot of boomer rock. A lot of uh, stuff from the seventies is their kind of their wheelhouse. That that seems to be their demographic. And uh, they were having a trivia night, and uh, I was sitting out drinking a beer. I wasn't playing the the trivia, but I was. Uh, they were sending it out to people on the deck via microphones and, and people were looking around answering at the questions and I, I knew the answers except for one. Except for one. I got one wrong and that was a question about a band that did real good in the 70s and had another set of strong albums in the 80s but they switched singers in the process and uh, if you say that you like the second singer not the first singer uh, you will start a fight and I thought they were talking about Black Sabbath. Um, I honestly thought that the answer was Black Sabbath. And uh, I was very wrong. The answer is Van Halen. Um, so... <laughs> 
I'm very sorry that I put Ronnie James Dio in the same category as Sammy Hagar, but apparently that's what I that's what I did. Uh, in any case, uh, Heaven and Hell is a very interesting album to listen to if you are a fan of not just like the doom metal vibe, but also just rock in general. Because it was, like ACDC's Back in Black, a shift over from one singer to the other. Uh, happened in the same year, as a matter of fact. Both these albums came out in the same year, Back in Black and Heaven and Hell. Um, Ozzy didn't die, of course. He just left the band, like Bon Scott died, so they had to replace him with, uh, with Brian Johnson. But um, there's a lot going on in Heaven and Hell. It's a very hard-charging album. Uh, it's got an almost, it's almost ACDC-ish, especially when they uh, really re- let loose, like on uh, Neon Nights and Die Young, and uh, just just a, just a need to, like, explode, to, like, prove that they're still Black Sabbath. And uh, there's some... So that's a, that's a strong thing, but there's also... Uh, there's also some 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 Zeppelin touches. Like I get a Zeppelin three kind of a vibe on like Children of the Sea, which I was not expecting at all, but it's there, and I shouldn't be surprised because if you listen to some of the lighter songs on uh, Paranoid or um, what's their third album, Master of Reality or Volume 4. There are a lot of lighter songs that that play in that kind of semi-folky tone because that's what they started as. I mean, Sabbath started as a hippie rock band called Earth. And so their heavy metal move was just something that they kind of discovered and developed and built over time. And they probably didn't become full-on metal until... I don't know, uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Mob Rules, like, Technical Ecstasy, you tell me, you tell me. There are always moments on their early albums where some of their hippiness comes to the fore, which is, um, which is interesting to me, because you think of Black Sabbath as being the er-metal band, and in a way that they are, but like a lot of the bands from the time they came from, like, you know, Hendrix or Zeppelin or Blue Cheer or any of the the heavy bands, like, they started as hippies. They all started as hippies. So those those echoes are, are still present in their work. And there's almost a taste, just like a, a taste of Tangerine Dream on the uh, intro keyboard vamp on the beginning of Die Young, before the band just, like, takes over and and runs roughshod over it. So they kind of sound like Led Zeppelin, and they also kind of sound like Judas Priest on this album. And uh, I find this all very interesting because uh, I was completely ignorant of of what Sabbath was doing in the 80s. I always went back to their their early stuff when I wanted to explore them. And... uh, this is one of those moments where I realized that some of the music from the time of my childhood really was more interesting than I gave it credit for at the time because I was a kid and uh, I didn't really understand it because, you know, if you just became aware of music in the 80s, it was a very strange time 
to not have any background. You know, it was, uh, there was synth and there was heavy metal and there was like the early rising curls of hip hop and there was also the post-punk underground that was going to explode in the 90s and none of it cohered. So you heard one thing and you couldn't relate it to anything else. Whereas I feel if you were older, you know, if you were an actual baby boomer, and you, you'd heard music as it developed in its youth, what was going on in the 80s would make a whole lot more sense to you because it was built off what you remembered. But for me, it was different. So I end up discovering things from the past that I'm surprised to discover that I like. And uh, I know I'm talking about an album that's 40 years old, but I don't care because, uh, you know, the cream rises to the top and, and quality is there. So... I don't know uh, how you feel about Black Sabbath, but if you feel anything about them at all, uh, and you wonder, you know, doesn't matter if there's no Ozzy, then I say to you that it doesn't, because uh, Dio sounds great. His he's got a, a a sharper and shrillier vocal style than Ozzy does. I mean, you you'd never mistake one for the other, but uh, what he's doing fits in really nicely with what the other three guys are uh, are throwing out uh ward and butler and iomi uh he is uh an absolutely worthy vocalist for for this band and um i'm kind of surprised it's taken me this long to to discover that but then it's taken me this long to even listen to them at all so this makes perfect and logical sense um record store day i just love it <laughs> I'm sticking a pin in this, my Summer's Lost episode. I I have nothing more to add. I'll be back uh, later on this month with some some more uh, lukewarm takes about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, But for right now, I'm uh, I'm gonna say say my goodbyes. So uh, if you're enjoying this, please uh, check out the rest of my stuff at contentblues.com. Uh, check out the unnamed journal Patreon, which is patreon.com slash shallowpedantic, or buy the stuff at gumroad.com slash shallowpedantic, and uh, my various published works are all available on amazon.com. Look for my name, Andrew J. Patrick. You all have an awesome day. Thank you. Hello? What? Hello? Hello? What? 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 What?